social media platforms have long sought to present themselves as venues for unconstrained free speech. A decade ago, Twitter's then-CEO Dick Costolo often described the company this way. We're the free speech wing of the free speech party. Years later, in a 2019 address to students at Georgetown University, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg reiterated his off-stated belief that tech platforms shouldn't be the arbiters of truth. He also defended the company's policy of not banning the accounts of politicians, even if they violated the site's terms of service. Now, I know many people disagree with this, but in general, I don't think it's right for a private company to censor politicians or the news in a democracy. Then, just a few months later, with the coronavirus pandemic shutting down large sections of our economy, to say nothing of our normal lives, everything started to change. Vaccine skepticism, some of it fed by just completely lunatic conspiracy theories. That the vaccine will leave an invisible, digital, trackable tattoo. Anti-vax propaganda grounded in conspiracy theory and pseudoscience is undermining confidence. I'm sure you've seen the pictures all over the internet of people who've had these shots and now they're magnetized. How effective is this coronavirus vaccine? How necessary is it to take the vaccine? Don't dismiss those questions from anti-vaxxers. One day it's like a miracle, it will disappear. With everyone stuck at home scrolling through their feeds and amidst the backdrop of a global public health emergency, the need to proactively clamp down on misinformation became critical. For example, in May of 2020, a video called Plandemic went viral on Facebook. Among other things, the video alleged that the oceans were full of healing microbes and urged people to avoid masks. As 2020 went on, the presidential election dragged tech platforms even deeper into the realm of content moderation, applying warning and fact-check labels to false or misleading elections information, as well as deleting the accounts of tens of thousands of QAnon conspiracy theorists. Twitter, for the very first time, is fact-checking the president. Fact-checking links to President Trump's tweets about mail-in voting. Facebook making a major move, banning QAnon accounts from all of its platforms. Due to problems with harassment and the spread of misinformation. Finally, in the wake of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, to many people, the fever swamp of chaos, hoaxes, and disinformation enabled by social media had now become too toxic to ignore. And over a period of days, all the main platforms had suspended the accounts of President Trump and many of his allies. For many, the bans were long awaited. But for others, they represented new and dangerous infringements on free speech, which is what we're going to talk about in today's episode. This is Uncommon Law. From the Bloomberg Industry Group, my name is Adam Allington. The deplatforming of Trump marked a striking change for an industry whose previous position was that the public had a vested interest to see what world leaders posted, even if it violated their terms of service. Obviously, it'll become clearer as time goes by as to whether this was just, you know, a politically expedient move. I mean, it is noteworthy that these things happened at the transfer of power to Biden. Katie Fallow is a senior staff attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. 
you could just cynically see that they just know there's a new sheriff in town and, you know, they don't want to get regulated by the government, presumably, so they want to keep in good graces. On the other hand, I think a lot of people were very, putting it mildly, taken aback by the events of January 6th and seeing how the disinformation and misinformation that has been perpetuated on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms led to real world serious consequences. And so whether or not they're concerned about their bottom line, or they actually have a political or philosophical view, you know, it's hard to tell. But this could be a significant change. It it feels like somewhat of a significant change. Katie, you've litigated lots of cases that involve the intersection of the First Amendment and the digital age. But before we talk about these recent cases, I think it's helpful to just briefly touch on some of the key cases that have established our modern day free speech protections, which have really only been in place for the last 50 years or so. Well, I think, you know, some of the cases that are particularly relevant to a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today involve the extent to which the First Amendment is interpreted to protect all kinds of speech, including speech that may advocate lawlessness or violence. And if you go back into the early 20th century, at that time, the Supreme Court really hadn't interpreted or dealt with the First Amendment protection for speech to a great degree. Right. I mean, we tend to think of our modern ideas of speech and expression as having been around for a really long time. But in reality, that wasn't the case. You know, and mostly at that point in time, the First Amendment had been thought to protect primarily against what were called prior restraints. So essentially, you can't have the government saying you can't publish something until we review it. And that was considered a very important part of the First Amendment protection when the Constitution uh, was adopted. So it's the early 20th century. There are all these new inventions and ideas about society and laws. And it's during this period where we see the Supreme Court take up a line of cases basically staking out the boundaries for where the First Amendment applies to other kinds of speech, including speech that could be considered harmful or threatening. Can you talk about the case of Schenck versus United States? The Schenck case involved a man and a woman who had distributed leaflets urging people to resist the draft because they were socialists or they, you know, they didn't approve of the U.S. being involved in the war. And in that case, the Supreme Court unanimously upheld their conviction under the Espionage Act, which made it illegal to basically give comfort to enemies or somehow aid enemies. And Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, writing for a unanimous court, held that, you know, expression is generally protected, but there are limits to that protection on free speech. And he says it's a matter of proximity and degree. And he gives as an example this, you know, famous quote where it says, you know, yes, free speech is protected, but you can't go into a crowded theater and falsely shout fire. You know, the government could punish that. And using that kind of uh, approach, he said, if there is speech that creates a clear and present danger that's going to result in criminal behavior or violence, then the government can prohibit that. 
And six months later, the court hears another case, Abrams versus United States, involving a group of Russian anarchist immigrants throwing leaflets out of the fourth floor window of a hat factory in Manhattan. The leaflets were written in English and Yiddish, and they condemned U.S. backing of the Russian government against the communists in the October Revolution. And again, the Supreme Court upholds the guilty verdict, but now two justices have flipped over to dissent. Holmes and Brandeis, in their dissent, start trying to create a more narrow exception to the First Amendment. And so they say, you know, the government should only be able to punish speech that, you know, produces or is intended to produce a clear and imminent danger. And that's the key standard. And in that dissent, Holmes, you know, talks about the importance of protecting speech, even speech that is possibly considered dangerous because of his faith that the marketplace of ideas would ultimately sort out the good ideas from the bad and that it's better to allow that debate to occur. And that includes questions about whether capitalism is the right form of government or whether the U.S. should be involved in certain wars. That, Holmes found, was a better way to treat problematic speech than to have the government just come out and censor it. In the decades to follow, the Supreme Court upholds a number of other illegal speech convictions. But for the most part, it wasn't speech urging people to take to the streets and overthrow the government kind of stuff. And slowly over time, people start to question whether the courts may have gone too far in their interpretation of this clear and present danger standard. And then, in 1968, the court agrees to hear the case of Clarence Brandenburg versus Ohio. Good evening. The Ku Klux Klan is a secret organization which for 100 years has been allowed to exist in this country. And that case involved a local leader of the Ku Klux Klan in Ohio, some portion of the Ku Klux Klan in Ohio, where he was at a rally in a farmhouse, but there were basically 12 other people there. And he, you know, they burned a cross and um, he said things about, you know, if the government wasn't going to listen to their complaints, there would be revengeance, which is not a word, but that's what he said. And and actually he said also, we're going to take to the streets. We're going to go to Congress with 400,000 people and take to the streets. So there's some echoes of what went on just recently. Brandenburg had been prosecuted under Ohio's criminal syndicalism law, which basically prohibits advocating violence or terrorism. But in this case, the court held that Brandenburg's speech did not meet the clear and present danger test imposed by Schenck. In doing so, the court effectively overturned a half-century of precedent and created a much narrower standard for criminal incitement. And the standard is you can prohibit advocacy of violence if it is intended to produce and is likely to produce imminent unlawfulness or violence. And that's what we've had is this very narrow category. So there really hasn't been many prosecutions of people for advocating violence since that time because it is such a narrow standard. You know, the one circumstance where I think people thought, yes, you could satisfy Brandenburg is when you're kind of at the front of a mob, an angry mob, and you say, let's go to the courthouse and burn things down. 
And of course, now there's many people who feel that Donald Trump's actions on the day of January 6th do, in fact, meet the legal test for incitement created by Brandenburg. So, Katie, what lessons or points from our case history around these issues of protected speech or government regulation of speech do you think are the most applicable to our current debate over Internet platforms? And whether there should be clearly established restrictions or rules governing what kinds of speech are appropriate online? Well, I would say two points. One, I do think it's important when you look at, you know, 120 years of Supreme Court interpretation of the protections of the First Amendment to be cautious about reacting to um, current events and, you know, current threats to to argue that you should radically change those protections, because I think those protections are very important and they they, it is valid to make sure that people can abstractly debate and talk about even revolutionary change or even violence because of, you know, our fundamental principle of free speech and not having the government engage in censorship. And so I don't think there's any reason to adopt some kind of new speech laws based on what happened on January 6th. You know, I think in general, the idea is supposed to be that if you speak in a way that's, you know, advocates violence and or just are very offensive or say things that are very incendiary, the general rule should be the answer to that is more speech or, you know, allowing that speech just to exist and then to debate it or, you know, dismiss it or whatever. Um, And what Brandenburg is supposed to do is say, well, in the very small number of circumstances where counter speech is not effective because you are actually advocating for people in front of you to go and hurt someone else. Well, that's, that's okay for the government to punish that. Katie Fallow is a senior staff attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. A key tenant of our speech laws that separates the United States from other liberal democracies is that the First Amendment also protects speech that is fundamentally objectionable, the so-called awful but lawful standard that also protects things like Holocaust denialism, which is illegal in Germany, or racial epithets, which are illegal in many other countries. On May 27th, the British government published a draft of its long-anticipated online safety bill, which would give the government sweeping new powers to force tech platforms to remove certain kinds of content. Stephen Barnett is a professor of communications at the University of Westminster in the UK. Stephen, what can you tell me about the backstory behind this proposed legislation? It was initially being promoted on the basis of concerns about things like hate speech, bullying, underage access to uh, pornography for for kids. And then in particular, as we went through the Brexit referendum and we saw what was happening in the States, uh, there has been more and more concern about disinformation and misinformation. Among other things, the new law would create a legal duty of care standard that can be used to force websites into removing, quote, harmful internet content. Failing to do so risks steep fines or being blocked by mobile and broadband internet service providers. Certainly online media, Twitter in particular, to a lesser extent Facebook, 
have actually been used for hate speech of different kind, actually. I mean, there's been quite a lot of, of racist hate speech, but also a lot of misogynistic hate speech. And particularly, we've had two uh, elections over the last three years. And in both elections, particularly women and particularly black women were subjected to some really pretty horrific online trolling. And sometimes I think we talk about trolling and it, it sort of almost by using that word, it tends to downplay the severity of, uh, of some of the language and also I think the impact on the recipient. I think that the kinds of things that are said, including really quite graphic death threats and the kind of language used has, has had a major impact on people's willingness to see some kind of regulatory intervention. Just as football has become a venue for issues of social justice and speech in the United States, in the UK, a number of Premier League soccer clubs and news outlets recently participated in an 84-hour social media boycott to highlight the problem of online racial abuse. In a recent interview with London's Times Radio, Oliver Dowden, the UK's Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, was asked how the forthcoming law would address this problem. Let me ask you this. Why is the government still tolerating racial abuse being openly handed out on social media platforms? Because it is illegal to say precisely this sort of thing in, in the street. Why have you not made it illegal to say it on Twitter? Well, this is an area of really big concern to me. And uh, that's why we're committed to bringing forward our online harms legislation. And the most important provision of that is to make what's illegal on the street illegal online and to make sure that social media companies have proper regimes in place to remove uh, illegal content and if they fail to do that they could face fines of up to 10 percent of their global revenue. Critics of the proposed bill, including many free speech groups, say it basically outsources the role of government to internet companies and then threatens to punish them if they get it wrong while also opening the door to the kind of draconian censorship regimes found in places like China or Russia. But Stephen Barnett, unlike here in the U.S., in your country, incitement to racial or religious hatred are actual crimes. So I can see why it would make sense that tech platforms also be required to uphold the law. Still, there are others in the U.K. who say the new law still doesn't go far enough. For instance, there's no requirement for platforms to verify the identities of its users. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a really, really important point. One of the things that I think is, would make a huge difference is disabling anonymity. And I know that's controversial because anonymity allows things like genuine whistleblowers and people with genuine grievances to speak out, and particularly if they're trying to avoid sanctions by organisations that might seek retribution. But I do think there are ways in which platforms can demand some kind of evidence of who people are, where they're from, on the basis that they will, of course, keep it entirely confidential unless they break the rules. People feel free to, to spout all sorts of disgraceful and nasty stuff under cover of anonymity. If they think suddenly their identities are going to be revealed, an awful lot of that stuff will be wiped off the internet very, very quickly. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has asked that the online safety bill create carve-outs for protecting political speech and opinions. 
According to many free speech scholars, the First Amendment has made the United States the most speech protective country in the world. But in the era of big tech, American support for such free speech exceptionalism may be on the wane. With the reform we will sign in today, we'll be the first state to hold big tech accountable so that everyday people who use their platforms have an ability to fight back. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed a law that would give citizens who've been deplatformed the ability to sue tech companies for damages. Several industry groups representing the likes of Amazon, Google, Samsung, and Facebook have sued to prevent the law from taking effect, calling it a frontal assault on the First Amendment. Other GOP-led bills in the House and Senate would seek to strip Internet companies of Section 230 immunity or seek to recategorize them as common carriers, like a railroad or phone company. On the other side of the aisle, the Democrats are pushing their own reform ideas, focused primarily on curbing the rise of online disinformation and extremism, which was what New Jersey Congressman Frank Pallone spoke about during a March hearing attended by the CEOs of Twitter, Facebook, and Google. We're here today because the spread of disinformation and extremism has been growing online, particularly on social media, where there are little to no guardrails in place to stop it. And unfortunately, this disinformation and extremism doesn't just stay online. It has real world, often dangerous and even violent consequences. And the time has come to hold online platforms accountable for their part in the rise of disinformation and extremism. So where does that leave us? Has social media basically broken the concept of true freedom of expression? Or is there a way to moderate content that would address concerns about censorship and disinformation? So you have conservatives claiming Facebook is unduly censoring conservative voices, and you have liberals claiming Facebook's not censoring hate speech sufficiently. But all of these concepts, what constitutes hate speech, what constitutes you know, speech that shouldn't be tolerated, have a great degree of subjectivity in how you apply the standards. This is Larissa Lidsky. And I'm the dean of the law school at the University of Missouri, and I also am an expert on First Amendment law. Larissa, I think that's part of the problem we're grappling with here, that while there is probably short-term political traction to be gained out of beating up on big tech— When it comes to solutions, whether it's increased content moderation, breaking companies up, or removing Section 230, there just isn't a lot of agreement there. I understand that people want a solution for what they see as harmful content on social media. And they expect the social media companies to do something about harmful content on their sites. And many of the social media companies are actually trying to do that. What I fear is that if you remove the protections of 230 in favor of a system that imposes a moderation obligation subject to penalties if it's not exercised correctly, that right now the concept of moderation is being used by political forces for their own purposes, for their own ends. Yeah. And one thing I've come to understand about the politics of content moderation is that framing the discussion in terms of the First Amendment kind of misses the mark. Because when you get right down to it, most people aren't free speech absolutists. And what they really want to see is for social platforms to carry the speech of people they largely agree with and ban the other guys. 
Yes. I don't think the First Amendment path to addressing the problems is the correct path, because what I worry about with that route is the government, when it comes in to tell private companies what speech should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed, is very dangerous. And we just don't want the government to to be dictating what what speech the government thinks is okay or not. I mean, that's why we have so many First Amendment protections against government infringement. And with all these legislative efforts in Western democracies to force websites to take down certain kinds of speech, are you at all worried that more authoritarian countries may also feel emboldened to do the same? Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm not just worried about other governments co-opting the disinformation argument to crack down. I'm worried about our own. So, uh, you know, oftentimes bad regulation proceeds from the best of motives, and there is a disinformation problem, but you worry about unleashing worse problems if you let the government, you know, have too heavy a hand in determining what's disinformation. So if I understand you correctly, that basically leaves us with a self-moderating system where Section 230 allows tech platforms to decide for themselves what kind of content they will allow on their platforms. So I, I don't think Section 230 produces such a terrible world as a lot of people think. I don't think it's the parade of horribles that a lot of people describe. Um, I think it's still necessary given the scope and scale of the moderation problem for social media companies that they need a lot of protection for to encourage them to make those determinations and not to punish them when they get them wrong because at the scope and scale they're going to do we're never going to be satisfied with all of their moderation decisions so i guess that means as worked up as people may get about the trump ban or disinformation cancel culture whatever Maybe the current system is ultimately a better place for democracy, capital D, especially if platforms decide to really lean into content moderation. Well, I think the other thing is that just because the government is restricted in what speech it can censor on the grounds that it finds it harmful, the social media companies do not have as many limitations on what they can censor. So here's an example. The government is not allowed to censor speech merely because it finds it offensive. So hate speech standing alone is not a legal category. In order to punish hate speech, it would have to fall into another legal category, such as true threats or incitement. That's not true for social media. Social media can censor, if you want to use that word, uh, speech just because it's hateful, just because it's offensive. And so they have more power than the government does to target disinformation, to target offensive speech, to target hateful speech. And as private actors, they might choose to use that, and it might improve the caliber and quality of discourse on their platforms. And in fact, the platforms are doing more of that. By the summer of 2020, nearly all of the social platforms were touting their proactive efforts against COVID-19 misinformation and election conspiracies. This is something Jack Dorsey of Twitter talked about the last time he testified before Congress back in March. We updated our civic integrity policy to address misleading 
or disputed information that undermines confidence in the election, causes voter intimidation or suppression or confusion about how to vote, or misrepresents affiliation or election outcomes. More than a year ago, the public asked us to offer additional context to help make potentially misleading information more apparent. We did exactly that, applying labels to over 300,000 tweets from October 27th to November 11th, which represented about 2.2% of all U.S. election-related tweets. Of course, labeling certain posts or tweets with fact-checked labels only further deepened the growing animosity between conservatives and Silicon Valley, especially from President Trump. What they choose to fact-check and what they choose to ignore or even promote is nothing more than a political activism group or political activism, and it's inappropriate. Platforms the size of Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter come with a potential audience of millions of people. So for someone who finds themselves cut off from that audience, I can see how the loss might feel like censorship. But then again, no one has the right to an audience. Everyone likes to scream about free speech and censorship in this debate. But the other part of that is, you know, you can't force a private entity to carry speech they don't want to carry. Jessica Malugin is the director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a nonprofit libertarian think tank. So, Jessica, just on the former president's allegations about fact-checking and censorship, first off, as we've already stated, platforms are private companies and therefore do not meet the legal definition of censorship. Second, the First Amendment doesn't confer a right to not be fact-checked. And third, and perhaps most importantly, the idea that politicians and public officials should be exempt from a fact check is, I think, kind of backward. I mean, these are precisely the kind of people who need to be fact checked, yes? I, I certainly can't speak to the motives of Twitter or Facebook. That That's not for me to say, but I will say that, you know, they're at a frontier economy. These are questions that are new questions. Um, different things are going to be tried. And and. At the frontier of the economy, things are messy and mistakes are made and people fumble around. And hopefully what you have is when those mistakes are made, you allow the market to respond with a solution to that problem. And one of the problems with regulation is that oftentimes it inadvertently gets in the way of what that market solution might be. And I think the great deplatforming uh, is an example of where that's a risk because now there's a lot of political interest in doing something about that. Uh, but there's not a lot of political agreement on what that something is. Of course, the last time the government had a big hand in media policy was the Fairness Doctrine, which originated in 1949 and was an attempt to enforce equal airtime for controversial topics on the nation's scarce radio and TV airwaves. The FCC voted to abolish the doctrine during the Reagan administration on the grounds that it violated the First Amendment and actually stifled the sort of democratic debate it was intended to promote. Still, Jessica, in the context of the current debate around social media, some are calling for a return of a fairness doctrine type approach to the Internet. The fairness doctrine was no boon for free speech. And those kinds of proposals applied to social media will have the same problems. Um, who's the arbiter of what's objective? Who says that that's equal time? And, and 
I would just humbly submit to you that if you don't care for what the rules are on Twitter, try Facebook. And if not Facebook, try the next thing that someone's creating in their garage right now. I would rather take my chances with that than have Senator Josh Hawley's bill from last Congress that wanted social media platforms to earn their Section 230 liability shield by going and proving that they hadn't been biased in their content moderation. So I don't want a group of unelected bureaucrats at the FTC deciding what is objective speech and what's going to be allowed on these platforms. I, I Content moderation is hard. It's harder at scale and it's not perfect, but I would rather take my chances in the marketplace where a new thing could come along and, you know, trying to woo people like me onto those platforms than um, the locus of power being in DC. I don't think that's healthy for free speech and I don't think that accomplishes um, anything but one group or the other being more resentful. As we said, the first incarnation of the Fairness Doctrine was overturned in 1987. But we now live in a world with a level of media diversity and information sources that would have been incomprehensible back then, which is why I think many are saying that the kind of marketplace of ideas approach that you're talking about just isn't producing the kind of positive utility that it once did. That social media and big tech are, in a sense, dividing people around completely separate views of reality. Well, I, I mean, I hate to always be giving the 30,000 foot view on this. I mean, I hear myself. But I think, you know, a lot of what that race to the bottom is about is sort of like the race to the bottom of humanity. I mean, that's sort of, you know, those are the ills of the world and how much you can control human nature through social media company regulation is something I'm very skeptical about. I mean, I'm not sure that those worst impulses don't find a way that maybe isn't better than just venting on Twitter about it. I mean, I do think social media magnifies differences, but I'm not sure that putting a bunch of rules on social media means that everyone wakes up ready to hug each other and listen respectfully to the other side of the debate. I mean, I just, I, I think that there's, you know, it's one thing if you feel that there's an impending physical threat about to happen. And it's a very different thing to say half this country or maybe the edge of half of either half is just unacceptable to us. Jessica Malugin is the director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Jessica, thanks so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Happy to be here. And that's where we're going to leave the discussion for today. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks again for listening.